Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Dr. Alan Abbas is a psychiatrist, teacher, and researcher. He is a professor of psychiatry and psychology and the founding director of the Center for Emotions and Health at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada. Dr. Abbas has consulted widely with governments, universities, and health agencies on the cost-effectiveness and applicability of short-term psychotherapy. He has provided over 300 invited presentations around the world, as well as ongoing video recording-based training to professionals in several countries. In addition, he has been awarded many research grants and has over 200 publications. He is also the author of Reaching Through Resistance, Advanced Psychotherapy Techniques, as well as co-author on numerous other books. Dr. Abbas has been a consultant to the American Psychological Association on the Unified Psychotherapy Project and to the American Psychoanalytic Association, where he serves on the Scientific Committee. He was a board member of the International Experiential Dynamic Therapy Association. He has been an editorial board member for the American Psychological Association journal Psychotherapy. Dr. Abbas is proud to be the David Milan Professor of Psychotherapy at the Tavistock, London, UK. All right, Dr. Alan Abbas, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Doing great, thanks. Uh, Dr. Abbas, it's so great to have you back on the podcast. Your previous episode on intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy remains one of the, in fact, I think it is the most downloaded episode of Thoughts on Record to date. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you today about factors that can influence treatment resistance or non-response in psychotherapy, as well as factors that can impact on any treating relationship, regardless of the theoretical orientation. Uh, treatment resistance is such an important topic, certainly for the optimization of care for clients, but also, I think, to help prevent burnout in clinicians. Uh, therapy is a difficult undertaking where we are connecting with human limitations on a daily basis. Any help we can get with respect to conceptualizing and uh, really effectively navigating these challenges will be so, so helpful. So thanks again for, for being on today. I really appreciate it. That's great. Glad we can meet again. So I guess just to start off, how do you define treatment resistance or, or non-response in psychotherapy? And, and which of those terms do you prefer and why perhaps? So uh, treatment resistance means we we do a bona fide treatment effort, either, you know, a psychotherapy effort using a model that has an, an indication for the condition being treated. So, for example, if we take CBT for panic disorder, we give a bona fide treatment effort, you know, proper number of sessions, we adhere to the treatment and the person doesn't achieve uh, remission uh, or you know, you could talk about either not responding or not remitting. And those are different levels of uh, degrees of response. So remission is a, is like really getting to the normal range and response usually means like 50% reduction of symptoms or some significant reduction. So I put those all together and say a person not getting back to the normal state uh, or a healthy state, um, uh, another not fully recovering would consider resistance. And we like to see people get to a, a state of full recovery because it protects them down the road. It protects them from long-term health problems, relational problems. Uh, so we, it's a nice thing to aim for, uh, even within the constraints of, uh, you know, the public, for, for example, here in Canada, the public uh, mental health system limitations or insurance provided limitations. Yeah, exactly. I wonder how many clients have the, and I'm going to air quote this, the luxury of being able to receive a course of therapy that would actually have a realistic chance of allowing them to, to fully respond. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a real it's a real challenge when they were in the in, in the limited healthcare settings, but it depends also on the condition and on on the population and how much uh, adversity the person has been through in their life and how uh, much difficulty they have collaborating and engaging with a therapist and doing whatever those therapeutic tasks are and completing those as much as they can. Uh, so. Yeah, so we're, we we talked about this, uh, this variety of these different factors that sort of influence that. But one is just how much of a trauma load the person has and how, uh, how able they are to engage uh, with the therapist. Well, I definitely have some follow-up questions for you around those factors. I, again, just sort of setting the stage for the conversation. Uh, do we know how prevalent uh, a non-response or treatment-resistant outcome is in psychotherapy in general, are there any rules of thumb? Again, appreciating it can, it can vary by presentation and therapeutic technique, but just in general, how big of a problem is this? In the probably the biggest data set is the UK uh, IAPT uh, data set, which points to that uh, a half or more don't don't respond or remit to frontline psychotherapy efforts, and that's generally anxiety and depressive uh, disorders. So. We're looking at a half anyway uh, who don't remit, and then there's a portion who relapse. So, um, so frontline uh, treatment efforts, uh, which are generally a brief, brief treatment effort of all people who come. You know, you can maybe you're you're not unhappy if half half get a good response to that. You know, compared to the data there. But when we're saying, well, that means half aren't responding. So what's going on with those people, and what can we do to help them out? I guess that's kind of the big question. Because without remission, uh, people are stuck sort of ping-ponging around the mental health and medical systems and insurance and disability systems longer and longer. And it just costs a lot of money and time and the person suffering them a lot of times unnecessarily. I'm not sure if you maybe want to put a number on it or just, it's really just to speculate uh, on the issue theoretically. I have a lot of clients who are embroiled in very, very difficult psychosocial circumstances, say a uh, ongoing custody access dispute of some kind, a divorce, a chronic illness, the, the chronic illness of a spouse. Would you consider that to be treatment resistant if the person doesn't respond? Or is that, are they simply having an expected reaction to very, very difficult life circumstances? I guess I want to see if there's a differentiation between the two here. Yeah. So the uh, a different factors that I sort of think about and when I teach about this, I talk about biopsychosocial, social and familial factors of leading to treatment, non-response and non-remission. So at the end, the end product is they're not remitting and they're not responding to treatment. So they're keeping an extra symptom load, but there certainly are social factors are very prominent, you know, particularly in the public mental health system where people don't have access to their own private pay uh, treatment services or an insurer backing them up. So often there's, as you say, there's, um, you know, for example, uh, frightening living situation that they're in. There's a domestic abuse in the home. There's a lack of roles. There's um, a variety of, uh, you know, discrimination and, uh, and for example, being subject, subject to racism in, uh, in systematically or in different situations, workplace and otherwise, or not having a, a role at all uh, and not having a lack of attachments, a lack of a family structure, lack of a network, lack of a kind of a tribe, if you like, um, and lack of, and then there's lack of money, uh, just the person's under financial pressures. These things definitely bear on outcome. 
Well, there's uh, studies in the States where inner city um, people who were more impoverished, they had worse outcomes in a treatment of depression using a brief dynamic model, for example, that just comes to mind. So these are some that are tougher to deal with. It's almost like these are like government policy issues in a way, you know, how, you know, it goes beyond what, you know, as, as psychologists and psychiatrists and professionals, we can advocate, you know, we kind of can press policy uh, and that can probably help outcomes. Uh, but it's, it's kind of goes out of the office though. We're extending beyond the therapy office here. <laughs> yeah. I hate getting that question from an, typically third party providers of insurance where they're like, what's the client's prognosis? And I'm like, well, it's an open question until we've given them uh, the highest intensity or dose of treatment that we possibly can. Otherwise, I'm just telling you what treatment is usual, maybe for you know a handful of weeks has been able to give them. So yeah, this question of, of response is not only a function of the person, but most c- certainly the system in which they're receiving the, uh, the care within. Yeah, definitely. That definitely is uh, the case. And it's really tough to, um, you know, you're send someone from insurance, for example, and they say they, they give you six sessions and they say, what's the, you know, can they return to work? And sometimes they can. And, you know, but, you know, the concept of maximum medical recovery is a term that we you hear with uh, workers compensation boards, for example. Uh, a lot of time that is a slow, you know, a slowly accrued gains over time. Uh, that's not going to be able to happen in six or eight sessions. Again, depending on how complicated the person's kind of personality makeup is. For sure. So I wonder if we could dig into maybe some of the first, maybe the biological factors that predict treatment resistance and feel free to go into the weeds as much as you want to on this. I'd, I'd love to just get just a really detailed picture of what our clients look like who, who map onto this treatment resistant category from that, from that lens. Sure. So, the biological factors are quite common as, a, as being present when people don't respond to treatment. So in a study that we did on treatment-resistant depression, the uh, people referred had 90% of them had chronic medical conditions. On top of 90% of them had personality disorders. So this is the pieces that are part of non-response. So as far as biological factors, you could say anything that impacts brain function is... Uh, is, is really uh, involved. So person can have repeated head injuries. They could have uh, intellectual deficits or cognitive deficits for other reasons, a birth trauma, for example. Uh, they could have uh, cognitive impairment like delirium or early dementing process. Medication effects. And I mean, it shouldn't be understated that uh, we live in a system where the primary, the front end of the care model is often physicians who often don't have the time or training uh, to know not to prescribe uh, medications as a first line. So um, benzodiazepines, for example, um, they can impact on impact on um, exposure, for example, uh, cognitive work, uh, emotional processing, all the things that we're are interested in psychotherapy. Uh, narcotics for chronic pain. So these different medications are, are really a prominent factor leading to limited treatment treatment effects in, in psychotherapy. There's metabolic issues, you know, for example, the person has uncontrolled diabetes or thyroid dysfunction. These are factors. Drug interactions um, with multiple medications. That's a prominent issue. Again, where people often have three and four or five more medications, especially in the elderly, it's a problem. Um, you know, uh, let's see, illness. Illness is like person having cancer or other conditions that really sap the energy. 
they're exhausted and they can't function cognitively to engage in therapy. And, and then there's just the impact of chronic pain and other certain somatic conditions that um, also take away the person's ability to concentrate and focus. Dr. Abbas, do you have a take one way or another around the notion of tardive dysphoria related to antidepressant use, namely that chronic ongoing use of antidepressants for a subset of people appears to actually perhaps maintain symptoms, uh, sometimes even after the compounds are, are stopped, in fact? I think that um, prescribing to me is a psychological intervention. How about that? <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, you know, it's probably the psychological effects I think are more prominent on the average person than the medical medication effects. So a person comes with chronic, uh, chronic um, depression and anxiety and somatic symptoms, for example, and they've been in the medical system for 40 years. Okay, so this is a, a person I worked with lately, recently, 40 years in the medical system, given 24 different pills, okay? Um, multiple medical efforts and different things. And so, it's extremely discouraging to the person that they get another medication. And so, because it's like missing the psychological mark for some people to say, let's give you a medication for this. So it's sort of a, an invalidation. It's a type of thing. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a small emotional trauma of a type, which can perpetuate the problems and keep the person in a miserable state. So it's hard to separate that from any medication effect, either in the, either when they started and stopped, Stopping a medication is another psycho psychotherapeutic event. It's a psychological event because for some people, the taking of a pill, it's like someone cares every day and they take it and they say, oh, someone cares, someone cares. And then when you stop it, they get a psychological withdrawal from it. Of type, no one cares, no one cares. So that can activate feelings of trauma or separations in the past in the same way as termination of psychotherapy can. And uh, patients who fail to, fail to be able to terminate, uh, patients who, for example, when you discharge them from hospital, they're, they're getting worse is often because of previous separations that were never addressed and all those loaded up emotions getting activated. And it's also a challenge of time-limited treatments and short treatments too. Really appreciate your perspective on that. In practice, how often do you discover that there's an organic or significant organic piece going on, like you alluded to, like a disturbed endocrine process or maybe even a, you know, like a brain tumor, maybe in the worst case scenario? Is that fairly common or is this sort of like a one in a hundred kind of scenario? Oh, so as far as like uh, new found medical illnesses, we found, um, we did a study of emergency department referred people who had chronic, uh, kept going back with somatic symptoms in the emergency department. I think we found it was three or 4% of people newly referred from emergency had medical problems that we detected after. So they were sent to us right fresh from emergency. So one had a pneumonia that was just the x-ray didn't show it till later. Someone had a gallstones that was not diagnosed until after. Uh, so, so there's a few conditions like this, but we've seen all kinds of sometimes odd, rare conditions like heavy metal poisoning, uh, someone with a missed diagnosis of MS, someone with a missed lupus diagnosis, someone with a thyroid condition that was missed. So, and, um, and even in our study, someone had a cancer that was not diagnosed. So that was not diagnosed till after. So uh, sometimes it, the, um, the, the detecting these things doesn't occur until after and um, just the way that some conditions evolve, but we want to always have our eye open for these things because they're, they're, you know, these are something that 
you know, the person can respond to treatment there and your psychotherapy can then move right along. A lot of clinicians are not going to have any medical training. Are there any obvious markers or patterns like a sudden onset or, or a first episode in, you know, at midlife that yeah. would, that should lead a clinician maybe to suspect that they need a referral to a medical professional? Yeah, the history is a great, those history uh, patterns is great. Um, so for example, like you say, uh, new onset, no previous history, nothing seems to fit. The other is the patterns of anxiety don't make any, don't make sense. Um, the other is cognitive dysfunction that was never there before. That pretty much always is pointing to, to um, something that uh, is organic. Uh, take your medication history, take your medical history, just like brief and just wonder for yourself, like, uh, about, is it benzodiazepines or, you know, uh, narcotics and a couple others that are quite common. Um, and uh, so if you get, get their cursory medical history and just talking like their, their main conditions, their main medications, um, you can always give a call to the family physician and say, do you think there's anything that's slowing this person down cognitively? I'll tell you, the family physicians really would appreciate really appreciate that when they when they get to collaborate with uh, with us as well. This is sort of more of an anecdotal question for you, but I've I've certainly compared notes with uh, with my colleagues around this, and I and I think there's perhaps a pattern here. A, a number of us have seen, especially with respect to men, guys who are kind of you know trucking along, and then maybe around like late fifties, there's a massive collapse of some kind in, into a severe severe depression often with almost psychotic like features over top of it. And then there's, it's very, very difficult to treat and, and often involves ECT and a lot of psychiatry involvement. Is that a thing or am I just imagining that? Is, is that a pattern that's known to any extent? Um, there's um, usually first onset severe depression is going to be before then. Um, but what you can see at, at those ages is, um, you know, andropause where changes in hormones, um, family disruption, uh, separations with uh, kids leaving home, um, friends dying, losing parents. A lot of things go on around the, in, those, in the 50s. A person's losing their physical capacities to do things. So they start to, they, you know, they're looking ahead to the grave, even though it's maybe 20, 30 years off. So those can be um, years that have psychological and physical effects. So, but I haven't, uh, I haven't seen a ton of people with new onset, completely new onset. Usually there's something before that you can look back and you can say, yeah, they use a lot of substance in their teens. They had panic attacks when they were in their twenties and they had stomach upset for a few years there. It was just showing up in different ways. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's often the case that they'll report something maybe cooking during university and uh, then mm -hmm. things kind of go dormant a little bit, but maybe very perfectionistic, hard driving. And it seems as long as that achievement tap is turned on, everything's okay. But I really, really like right. what you said about the, especially maybe a life transition, like a retirement of some kind, yes. when that tap is turned off, it's like things can really just collapse in a, in a big way or often being laid off at that. It's very common for uh, people to be laid off at that age because it beca they become right. too expensive, essentially. Yes. Start, start accumulating those kind of losses and disruptions and separations. Absolutely. So what about the social factors that predict treatment resistance? What have you found in your research there? We haven't done any formal research ourselves on this, but around social factors on their own. Um, but they're so, they're very common in some situations for sure. Um, thinking about our, our couple of our randomized controlled trials that we did on personality disorders and depression, 
for a lot of them were disabled. So they lose their role. Um, they have some financial stressors. They get family stress at home. Um, there's um, some, some of them had aggression in the home. Uh, not many in that, in our studies were in like frightening living situations just because of who we got in the studies. And, uh, and also just, again, by the way, the referrals went, there was, there wasn't as much of the populations that were under social discrimination or racism just by virtue of who we ended up in the original study, the way it went. So there are some, um, but it's, you know, when you get in a research lab, it's different. You know, if you're working in a, some community areas, you're going to see plenty of this. You know, you, you know, for example, the person, they hear a gunshot shots at night in their neighborhood, you know, and then they find out that there's people that get killed every, every month or two in that kind of situation. That's like very unsettling for the whole communities. And it has a psychological effect from this social factor. So lack of safety there. So... Yeah, it's definitely a factor for some for some populations. We had talked about this on your last appearance on the podcast, the special challenges that adverse early life events pose with respect to creating challenges around non-response to treatment. Could you maybe right. open that up just a little bit more and, and talk about how that piece influences outcomes in psychotherapy? Sure. So when psychological factors of resistance, there's two ways you can think about it. Uh, one is uh, people who have low capacities and people who, and then the other group is people who are over-defended, over-guarded. So one group, you can say, if I use, think about um, a CBT equivalent, they can't tolerate the exposure, okay? And the others that are over-defended, they won't do the exposure. They don't get, they won't let themselves, you know, do the exposure. They won't let themselves be present with their emotional response. Uh, they guard and defend and avoid. So they're more phobically avoidant uh, and have personality behaviors, uh, patterns that prevent them from feeling anything much. The other group you can say are flooded with more anxiety and somatic symptoms. So I guess talking about the low tolerance groups, um, there's two kind of categories that we think about within this type of model, the model that we use. One is, we, is the fragile patients who cognitively disrupt when they're anxious. They lose their hearing, vision, they can faint, they can even hallucinate when they're anxious. They tend to go to black and white kind of splitting. They tend to project their own emotions on others. They tend to dissociate and cognitively disorganize. They have, can have very poor memories, uh, memory function, and be very confused when you see them. So this group, they have had in our, you know, in, our, in all the large case series data, um, you know, very poor early attachments and a lot of trauma on top of it. So parents that also had this type of pattern, they couldn't bring into the child ability to self-soothe and calm down themselves and then a lot of trauma on top of it. So they have such a load of unprocessed emotions that when they try to attach to, 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 to the therapist, they get completely flooded and afraid and get a, a range of symptoms right in the office in front of the clinician. And that's whatever model you're using. So trying to do, say, for example, if you wanna do graded exposure with this population, um, it's very challenging because they're so flooded to start with that you end up having to just regulate down anxiety. You have to do grounding approaches and then build anxiety tolerance and build interpersonal tolerance and interpersonal awareness of what happens 
when they're trying to attach to you, the therapist. So that group, um, they're, they, you know, they, you, in a DBT equivalent, um, you know, they have d- major problems with in, in, intolerance of distress. So you think about distress tolerance modules, you just think about these type of things to build the capacity to reflect. So they lack reflective capacity. They lack the ability to mentalize this another uh, frame to think about. So, um, so that's one group. Second group have a lot of, we call it severe repression, meaning emotions come up and like including anger and such gets activated. It goes right into the gut, into the stomach, into the blood vessels. They get migraine headaches, get weakness in the muscles. They get nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and they get bad depressive episodes, like really exhausted, severe states. So that group also has had early trauma and they also have lacked, um, you know, parenting that helped them learn to regulate themselves and tolerate their own anxiety. And they have off and on episodes throughout life typically. So those two groups, they need capacity building work. Um, so this repression group, if you try to do, I'm just thinking the exposure response prevention here, you try to do it, they get diarrhea before, when you talk about it, they, get, they have to go to the washroom. They get diarrhea in your, like not in your, they have to go out because they get sick in their stomach when you talk about uh, doing a hierarchy. Or they start getting a migraine when you talk about it. They start getting uh, weak in the muscles. So, see, so this group as well, you know, interpersonally with us, with us, the therapists, a lot of emotions come up about earlier attachments, but they can't regulate them. It just shoots into all these terrible symptoms on them. And they get scared of us. They get exhausted. And um, these are groups that you know, eight and 10 sessions is tough for them to make a big gain on. It's hard for them to remit with their symptoms. And usually they require, you know, more than that, a minimum 20 and ideally even more than 40 in some cases, depending how severe these uh, levels of these things are. So that's a low tolerance, uh, low tolerance group. Um, the over-defended group, on the other hand, they tend to have really rigid belief systems and cognitive sets and like avoiding habits that are really quite rigorous. For example, when you interact with them as a, as, a, as a therapist, they become very passive and just sit there and wait for you to tell them what to do. And then they don't activate themselves. They're just waiting, relying on you. Uh, they may have a very strong defiant tendency. So whatever you recommend, they do the opposite or they don't do what you're recommending. And it's a habit that they just do. They don't think about it. Uh, it's, an, it's, a, it's an inability to align in a collaborative way with you, with us, the professional, and make a good experience for themselves and make their gains. This group tends to have anxiety in the muscles. So they have like a lot of tension symptoms and they're like muscle spasms and aches and tremors. They tend to have chest pain. They can get panic attacks from hyperventilating. They have a lot of sighing and tension in the muscles, like hand clenching. So these things, um, when you meet this and you're trying to do traditional, say, cognitive therapy, it's really tough because they hold tight on their cognitive sets. They hold, you know, rigidly on their beliefs and they hold on their behaviors. So what you end up having to do is help them see the way they don't, they don't let themselves collaborate with us. They don't let themselves engage with us. They don't like, they don't let themselves have a team. They keep hurting their efforts to, you know, to attach. And so, 
what we do find though, is when we do address those things I just described, meaning how they attach and how they avoid attachment, I should say, it tends to really reduce all the different symptoms. They get a generalized phobic reduction, for example. They get a generalized like elevation of mood. So it's kind of like the kind of the, the axis or the key central process going on is attachment difficulties. And so when you go toward attachment process with us, help them identify that, help them feel some of the emotions that come up from being attached to us, then the other things start, start, to, start to go down altogether, which is kind of interesting. Because often, you know, if you try to do a phobic work with a person who's too defended, it's like it becomes like they do one symptom gets down, then they get another one, then they get another one. They keep moving around. So they don't hold a generalized impact in, in some of these cases. I want to ask you in a moment, sort of in a nutshell, you know, what the algorithm is for, for dealing with this. And you've alluded to it here and there, but I want to ask you another question first. What are common therapist responses to treatment resistance as you've just described it in the context of the treating relationship? I think a lot of us unwittingly end up having a negative response to these, to these clients, which is not helpful to anybody, of course. So can you maybe talk about the typical response that happens in these situations? This is a great question because this is one of our challenges as, as, uh, as mental health professionals and therapists is uh, recognizing our own responses, recognizing our particularly our emotional responses, our visceral body responses as information about the patient, but also to make sure that we continue to keep the patients in a continual positive regards situation. Regardless, again, these are, again, regardless of whatever model we're using. So the... Uh, challenges here, uh, if you take these different groups, first of all, you might have your own view or bias around people who have social difficulties. Uh, you might have your own reaction to someone who's in domestic abuse or on the other hand is doing domestic abuse. You know, people who are doing uh, physical aggression, um, you know, you might have an overly empathic, sympathetic reaction to people who are in these tough situations too. And that can take us out of a therapeutic stance that can be as helpful in some cases, kind of like pitying almost sometimes it becomes too much. So there's a lot of things we can react to um, uh, around the social factors, for example, biological factors. We might have bias about people taking medication and, uh, and being, or using drugs because this is again about some substance abuse is a big factor there too. We might have our own experience in that in our past. We might have feelings about that, you know, when the parents or someone used drugs. So there's a lot of, of situations where we will have our own feelings come up about what we've been through in our own childhoods. And those feelings, it gives us an opportunity to, to deal with something in the past if we take the opportunity, right? If we miss it though, we can end up ourselves getting defend, defensive with the patient. We start to criticize the patient. We start to detach and withdraw. You know, and if you think about these kind of reactions we can have, you can think of it in two broad ways. One is overdoing and the other is underdoing. So on the overdoing category, we try to do too much. We're, we become over controlling of the patient's behavior. We start to dictate things to them. We're not collaborating like a side-by-side -side situation. So it's like overpowering kind of a thing, reacting out of that. And another one is the more underdoing. It's kind of like we're not doing enough. We're not engaging enough. We're not offering enough uh, of ourselves or of information we have. 
and what can often happen too is um, ping-ponging between the two. So going from not doing enough, then to becoming over-controlling for a while, and then stopping ourselves, and then not doing enough again. So flipping. And, you know, there's a sweet spot in the middle there, obviously, where the patient needs us to be present, strong, using our knowledge, collaborating with them, encouraging them being strong and collaborating back with us as a central part of therapies. So recognizing when we're out of balance, it's often because of reactions to biological or psychological uh, or social factors. The psychological ones have a unique effect too. For example, if a person is using projection, they're afraid of you. So for example, they think that you're angry at them. They come in and they're scared of you. Well, you're then being treated like someone who's frightening. Uh, that's often upsetting for the therapist. I mean, we need to, it's important that we recognize that that's the patient's thing and we're going to help them with it not, and not feel like offended about it, right? Not react that way. The other is if a patient gets a lot of symptoms that are disturbing, that can throw us off too. So some patients get nauseated or lose consciousness and that can happen in the office, but it's not usually a big problem for the patient because they do it all the time anyway. But for us, if we're not used to this thing, that can alarm us. So um, some of these things, it's, it's partly getting used to stuff by, by having years, more years in doing therapy. So as you go 10 years in, you've mostly seen everything. You've seen the patient that goes faints in your office. You've seen all this stuff. You get comfortable with things, but it's tougher in the earlier years. Um, same with the depressive patient who is very self-loathing. So patients who are are very angry at themselves, you might feel the same way they do, angry at them. So you jump on the, you end up on the same bandwagon of angry at them. So recognizing that uh, when you really feel a strong um, negative feeling to the patient, it usually means there's something going on in the patient. So use it. Like if, the, if you feel like you hate the patients, like what's that coming from? You know, usually it's the patient hates themselves. So, um, so these are things that can create treatment on treatment on response, right? Because if we're off balance and we're not bringing our best, our best forward to collaborate, then our models just don't, they don't get the best chance to work. Right. So. No, for sure. And it feels like in the early years for a lot of clinicians, it's activation of their own defectiveness that is among the most challenging of internal issues to deal with. They will see the client's uh, inability or, or to respond to the treatment uh, or the treatment having failed them in that particular moment as a real stark reflection of them. And I, and I suppose there's instances where it could be, right? If someone's not competent, then that's something to reflect on as well. But in my experience, clinicians are typically quite hard on themselves, especially early on when things aren't going the way that they're supposed to, as per the textbook uh, representation of therapy. Yeah, so the the early years have a lot of, uh, a lot of challenges for all of us. I mean, first of all, one of the factors of, of psychotherapy is recognizing the limits of what we bring as a clinician and what as a way to empower the patient that they got to carry their load and we don't, we can't carry it. We don't create the outcome, right? We bring our best to it and we hope they can, you know, generate that. So we need to be able to recognize the limits of what we can do, uh, accept those limits. And that's tough to do in our early years because we want to have success, <laughs> We want to do well. We want our patients to do well. We want to feel good about what we're doing. 
And until you accumulate some successful experiences with patients, you're always going to be on the edge, like of trying to make it happen. And therapy isn't, it doesn't work when we're trying to make it happen. You know, it, it, it happens, uh, you know, under the collaboration of two, two people and other processes the person does. Can you maybe speak a little bit about uh, more about avoiding burnout from your perspective with respect to treatment resistant clients? And again, feel free to get on the weeds in, weeds in this and with respect to maybe number of clients that people can realistically see a week or maybe how they spread out their load throughout the week or like thinking through just even technical aspects. Like many, many of us are very busy. We have a number of people and it's hard to uh, sometimes give the kind of presence and time to, you know, a handful of clients when we have a whole roster that we are looking after our whole, our own families, lives, especially in COVID, things like that. So there's a lot of different issues that uh, around load, you know, load management, <laughs> thinking of basketball and sports, you know, we have to decide on, on um, and, and evaluate what we can do effectively. And that's not going to put us into a, a level of distress or exhaustion and that again takes time and also adjust it'll adjust you'll adjust it over your career over the career too because life changes you know having kids for example um, different life events you're going to have different different loads and so the other one way to think about it is how many patients of what type are you going to have in your caseload so for example, the very disturbed individuals say with borderline personality disorder, a lot of disruptive impulsivity, it's challenging to have a whole caseload of that if you're doing one-on-one -on -one therapy. If you're doing groups with this with, this, with a colleague, that's different. But one-on-one -on -one models, you wanna have a limited number of patients who really you have to fully concentrate for that whole hour and even afterward, if you're reviewing video of your sessions or whatever you're doing to augment your outcomes there, which, which is strongly recommended for those groups to be able to review after record and review. So you wanna have a limited number there and you wanna have sort of um, also a limited, um, a limited kind of a variety of patients as much as you possibly can, who has some of whom respond in a relatively efficient fashion and some who you know are gonna be longer. So when I started practice, I had two lists and I had a one list that I knew was going to be long. And I had one list that I could estimate that were going to be relatively short. So I had kept people moving through the short list. And I only had a limited number in the long list. Otherwise, the risk is you end up with all long cases. And if you're, it, it reduces the kind of service that you can provide. And by service, I mean helping people with five sessions to not have to be on antidepressants. That's a great service. Okay, so if you can help five sessions of something, it's a great service. Uh, and uh, even if you have to do it a few times. So that's a general approach. If you have, a, you know, if your um, models allow you to use a longer frame and most all of ours do, then you can have a long list and a short list. That's one way to think about it. As far as like, um, the other one is uh, boundaries. Protecting the boundaries is really important. So, um, having your weekends protected, having your evenings protected, unless you're in some kind of on-call for your practice or something like this, share that you're on-call if you have practice on-call. So you're not on there seven days a week. Um, so you have time that you're, you don't have anything, any clinical material having to go in. That's one way, one thing. Being as much as possible, having a, uh, control of your practice parameters. And if you're say hospital-based, 
um, then having the ability to weigh in on your practice patterns as a, say, as a psychologist in the hospital. Um, you need, you know, so one factor of burnout, the big one is not having control. And then there's case load and then there's, uh, you know, challenging level of cases. So if you think of those three, um, good to look at it early in your career and, and try to set the stage so that you can have a long productive career, keep enjoying it, you know, Continuing education is a great thing too. I mean, obviously most, most all of us have some of that. Teaching is great as well. It's an awesome way to learn when you teach. Um, the other is peer, peer, peer review or you know, peer get togethers where you get together, you look at each other's video, you share your successes, share the challenges and kind of keep pushing and nudging each other along, particularly around challenging cases. I think that's an awesome thing to prevent burnout too. No, I love all those suggestions. I think the peer support in particular is is really critical. We have this strange job where we work in an office all day by ourselves. No one really is able to bear witness to what we go through other than ourselves. And uh, getting the support from our colleagues, I think, is, is really imperative. Another thing I used to do as well, or I noticed that I did when I first started, is I would give priority to a lot of the urgent sort of calls that would come through. And what I found is after two years, I had a caseload with a lot of people with a lot of heavy symptomatology because I had selected in the folks who were sort of the more urgent cases. So apropos your sort of short and long list, it's really don't always just load up on the, on the urgent cases. Make sure you have a balance between the, uh, b- between the two. My impression from our previous discussion, as well as subsequent reading that I've done, is that uh, intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy might be particularly suited for chronically ill clients who have not previously responded to psychotherapy. Uh, is, is this indeed a, an accurate statement? And if so, what do you think are the, the active ingredients that allows it to address some of the unique challenges experienced by these clients? Yeah, so there, the, the model was actually built for the refractory patient. It was built because of the limitations of, of, the, of, of counseling services and other things that were in existence in Montreal. So it was built to evaluate or to be able to evaluate and work with the refractory factors. So for example, um, you know, destructive fixed uh, belief systems, okay. Fixed avoidant, these fixed avoidant patterns is over-defended individuals and the fragile groups and the ones with the somatic symptoms that go into the body. So it's kind of like uh, built into it different, uh, therapeutic approaches that work with these different factors. So the over-defended individual, we work almost all in the here and now in the office on what way they avoid collaborative engagement and attachment with emotions being present. So it's all about how they defend and helping them not to defend and learn how not to do it and understand and start to feel the emotions that drive defenses. Goes back to attachment trauma. The more ones that are flooded and, um, um, you know, with low capacity, it's, there's really a process that's parallel to graded exposure. It's, but it's done, the exposure is to attachment with you and the feelings that that brings, the complex feelings that it brings. That's your exposure. It's into the here and now attachment complex feelings, including being aware of the body, being able to tolerate the anxiety, being able to recognize the feelings, being able to see and be able to express those when they're felt. And that's the way of building that anxiety tolerance. And then gradually they start to be able to heal the attachment trauma. 
for some people, it's a few sessions to get to the old attachment trauma. For some, it's a few months because they're so dysregulated. So it's here and now to bolster the capacity to attach and recognize, reflect, observe, and be able to feel emotions and tolerate the anxiety associated with emotions. So if you take those together in a private office study that I, I did in uh, Vancouver, um, that allows you to work with 86% of referrals to a psychiatrist office. This is, uh, and so, and of those ones, only 14% were um, not highly resistant or, or fragile. So just to say in a psychiatric office, it's 73% were, um, were fragile or highly resistant with repression or just highly defended. So there, so in other words, the bulk of people that come to that kind of setting are the ones that aren't going to respond, uh, and they're but they're candidates for an approach like this. It's not always short, by the way. The term is uh, short-term dynamic, intensive short-term dynamic. But in some of these cases, who are severely fragile or with borderline disorder, it's going to be a couple of years if they if you have the time to do it. They could benefit from twenty sessions. Some will remit on symptoms at twenty sessions of that group, but ideally you have a couple, you know, a longer period of time to work together than, than, than just 20 sessions. There's going to be a lot of clinicians listening who maybe while interested in intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy, just won't have the training. A lot of people might have more of a CBT background. Are yes. there any analogs in terms of techniques that CBT clinicians would be familiar with that map onto what works so well about IST DP? Yeah, it would, the exposure response prevention model to me is 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 really like the best parallel. The exposure being to attachment-related emotions in vivo in office, and response prevention means help them not defend and avoid attachment with you, being present with you. So that's your ERP equivalent. Okay. The other part, though, from the cognitive model is is going after these fixed belief systems that are so rigid and um, so dysfunctional as they relate in the room though. So for example, they have this rigid uh, belief that, um, that they have a low self value because it was sort of branded into their mind as a kid that they're low value. And so for that person, it's like, you're gonna go, you're gonna do all of the cognitive work to challenge this, uh, recognize it, challenge it and uh, when you do that, they're going to have feelings about the fact that you're helping them stop doing that. And those feelings have a nice therapeutic effect on their own because it brings up the, the schema, you know, the attachment trauma of the past come up in the office. They'll feel those feelings with you that are tied to the past when you interrupt these, these fixed beliefs. So in other words, you can be doing straight cognitive behavioral therapy and you can at the same time be doing what we do, ISTDP. At the same time, and it's just a matter of where and how, how you do it. Uh, but you can certainly think of it as an ERP, a fancy kind of ERP model that's here and now exposure uh, and processing as well. And that's the other thing is behavioral chain analyses uh, is super, you could call a lot of what we do that after the feelings are felt, we do that. We link it all together and we tie it in a, a way that enhances the understanding. So, um, so I find that people with a CBT background, they can, they can really see these things uh, from that framework. It may not be a normal thing to look at because it's so much focused on feelings in the body 
and it's focused so much on the here and now. That's not traditional CBT, but but it's something that some people find it's it, it they find it helps speed up their regular CBT work when they bring some of this in. No, I totally agree. Since our conversation and having read your book and, and other books as well, it's it's almost given me a window into the secret world of what's going on actually in the interaction when you're really attuned to especially like the body language. I mean, like the sighing or the clenching of fists and just those kind of nonverbals. It really, really, there's a lot of rich information there if you're attuned to it. I mean, really, I'm just kind of casually uh, and informally moonlighting in it, but I've even just my little foray into it has been super helpful at sort of dissecting what's going on process-wise between myself and the client. That's great. I mean, the the term implicit processes, you know, uh, sort of the things happening pre-consciously or unconsciously versus consciously, even just thinking of that concept and say, where did that come from? Why would they think that? You know, so uh, that's kind of an extension of, of uh, cognitive work, but you know, it goes with assumptions and and automatic thoughts. So this isn't like completely um, foreign to some people's CBT approaches. Um, I remember I did exposure uh, I did. I, I trained in CBT at Toronto at Cam H uh, with uh, Richard Swinson and, and uh, Anthony uh, Martin, and uh, so I was doing a, when I was doing exposure. I, my patients were having breakthroughs. It was fascinating to see they'd be doing exposure. Uh, this one fellow was walking up the road doing exposure just by getting out of his house walking, and all of a sudden behind him he was hearing these foot loud footsteps. And he was thinking there's his father behind him. And he felt this strong anger come up through his body. And all of a sudden, he wasn't anxious anymore. But the guy behind him didn't have big boots on. It was just like he was experiencing that, you know. And those feelings kept coming up, and they were causing him to be anxious. But that ended up really cutting his phobias down by having those feelings come through. And so in our sessions, in our sessions doing the um, prepping for exposure, I was doing some emotional work there to kind of help him cue into that. So when he was going out, he was thinking, what's going on inside? Why do I get anxious? So you can augment um, traditional exposure by emotional awareness, emotion processing too. I think it's worth mentioning uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett's model of constructed emotions, whereby we're not detecting reality. We are predicting reality, right? And it's a, it's our past that of course is the, uh, wellspring from which our predictions flow and therapy is all about providing data so we can make better predictions ultimately hmm. of, uh, of, of what's going on. Yeah. And you know, the other way to think about what we do as therapists and what we all do is we're disconfirming schema. You know, you're giving a person a good experience with another human, you know, and a person that's been beat up a lot in life, it's invaluable. And it almost doesn't matter in a way what you do <laughs> as far as your interventions. When you're providing that as a concerned other person who's got some kind of framework to understand, you get the bulk of treatment effect there, right? Regardless of model. So you get your 80% uh, benefit by, by being a concerned other who has boundaries, who has some framework, who's, who is going to collaborate and uh, give a good interpersonal corrective experience there. And on its own, that changes thoughts, that changes behaviors, that brings emotions, that brings stuff from childhood. All the, all these things come up at the same time. So there comes the challenge of us kind of mastering ourselves, getting comfortable in ourselves, um, seeing, watching ourselves use, ideally with video so we see where we're going off, off balance or you know, correcting ourselves, adjusting ourselves. 
some kind of peer input and sometimes other kind of learning experiences. Just a uh, one or two more questions for you here, just being mindful of your time. What do you make of the client who is very pleasant in session and kind of is going along with the plan as long as you're sitting with them, but then sort of actively resists treatment outside of the therapy therapeutic setting uh, to, the, to the extent that nothing's really getting done, but, you know, they're extremely pleasant and, and agree with everything in the moment? So this group, this category of highly resistant patients, one of the most common socialized, socially reinforced styles of high resistance is being really pleasant with professionals, being pleasant. And, and it's almost, it's overly pleasant personality disorder that's never going to make it to DSM, okay? The same as overly religious personality disorder is never going to make it into DSM. You know, it's, it's not a balanced situation where there's no ability to ever feel anger with anyone. It all has to be shunted into behavioral avoidance. So, under that situation of the need to please, the person is not going to do the things that they need to do for themselves because they're complying. They're forcing themselves to comply. And compliance is the same as defiance. It's a way to just control and not activate and get any internal exposure. So it's an exposure killer. Okay. Exactly. And uh, the other is try, try even to do cognitive work there too. It's really tough. And for us, um, trying to help them recognize what they do with emotions like anger and they defend and they don't even aware how they're defending, but they constantly turn it inward and, and uh, keep hurting themselves. So that's why with that group, again, we work here and now in the room, help them see, help them see that they don't genuinely attach. They have sort of superficial pleasantries, but not really, you don't really get to see a person. You only see the structure that they've been reinforced to behave like common, more common traditionally, you know, say in the last 60 years of girls growing up to be women uh, and other, you know, other groups of people and different religion groups and such where um, there's no place for experiencing an awareness and of, of anger or assertiveness even. I really like that conceptualization of compliance as a form of defiance. That's a real light bulb moment for me. And I'm going to have to reflect on that. That opens a lot of doors. Uh, Dr. Abbas, I just want to give you the last word here. Is there anything or any parting thoughts that you want to leave the audience with around treatment resistance? It's great to get to a place to think about treatment resistance. And, you, you know, if it's someone's coming to you, they've failed 10 treatments and now they're there to see you. To think about this as kind of a challenge uh, to take on and to, to master and to it's like detective work almost. It's like, what are the factors going on here? And, and, you know, and you'll see, you're going to see all of these things that we talked about. You're going to see stuck social factors. You're going to see stuck biological processes, too many pills, et cetera. You're going to see these overwhelmed patients that can't tolerate any, anything exposure and otherwise. And you're going to see these really rigid defended individuals who can't see what they're doing. So, um, you know, I just encourage you to sort of, uh, Go after that challenge and 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 not and keep don't beat yourself up about it because you know uh, we're all of us have patients that aren't going to respond sometimes so that's just the way it is but what we can always do is give it our best shot there and say well what, what here's my checklist I got thirty things on it let's see what's going on here and just that curiosity on its own and your efforts uh, make a huge difference for patients who've been suffering for 20 and 30 and 40 years. 
Excellent. Well, that's I think that's a great point to uh, to stop at, uh, Dr. Abbas. I really, really want to thank you for your time and expertise today. Thank you so much for another great conversation. Uh, I'll look forward to uh, perhaps speaking with you again soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks again for having me. You are welcome. Take care. Thanks. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.